we had a lot of influence from listening and being active listeners and showing the people, you know, whether you're in the private sector working with clients, whether you're public sector working in government, or even talking to reporters, showing people that you're actually listening to a conversation and you're actually taking something from it and being an active listener and getting the, the finer points down. I actually think you gain a lot of influence from that and credibility from that. Have you ever noticed that some of the best ideas come from unexpected places? Your next breakthrough may come from a leader facing similar challenges, but in a completely different sector. Welcome to Chief Influencer. I'm your host, Anthony Shop. Join us as we explore how today's successful leaders inspire, influence, and connect with others. Chief Influencer is a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board, who have teamed up to spotlight how great leaders and communicators are making their impact in the world. Allow me to introduce Mike Ricci. Mike served as Maryland Governor Larry Hogan's Director of Communications, overseeing more than 120 public information officers across state agencies and coordinating all marketing and messaging campaigns. He led the state of Maryland's public relations response to the COVID-19 pandemic, coordinating daily press conferences, developing a multi-phase marketing campaign, and leveraging social media to connect directly with constituents. I'm sure he didn't get much sleep during that period. In uh, 2022, the Daily Record named Mike an influential Marylander in the field of communications. Before this, Mike was a longtime leadership aide on Capitol Hill with senior communications roles in the speakerships of both John Boehner and Paul Ryan. For Speaker Ryan, he was director of communications, coordinating messaging that led to the enactment of major tax reform and overseeing institutional communications for the U.S. Capitol. For Speaker Boehner, he was chief speechwriter and deputy director of communications, overseeing content development and distribution. Uh, In spring 2023, Mike was a fellow at the Georgetown Institute of Politics and Public Service, leading a discussion group about crisis communications. And Mike's currently a partner at the firm Seven Letter. So Mike, thank you so much for being with us uh, today and welcome. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. Well, I want to start by asking you, you know, as the trusted communications advisor for an elected official, who represents millions of people. There are a lot of stakeholders. I think you have to manage and you have to influence, uh, but you also are in a position to influence one very important one, the principal who you work with. So could you start by telling us about that? Yeah, I mean, it's when I, you mentioned I did the thing at Georgetown last semester. And before I went into the semester, I basically did an unscientific, but I sort of just texted about a dozen communicators I know especially in government. And I said, you know, what do you think is the one thing you'd want to impart to future up and coming communicators? And almost to a person, Anthony, the response was the importance of communicators having a seat at the table of being seen by their bosses as strategic partners of not just having it be like, here's the message of the day. Here's a press release. Can you please go send this thing? Proofread it first, but please go, you know, please send it out right away. And the importance of communicators being seen as problem solvers because we're the ones on the front lines, we're the ones taking the taking the incoming, you know, pushing the message out, and having that influence, that trust, it really is your leverage. It's your leverage uh, with your own team, showing your team that you have the confidence of the principal, showing the press that you know you're the main communicator, and it affects everything that comes after in terms of your body language with the press. You know, sometimes you'll see a, you know, you'll see something go out in the press and then you'll see it walk back a bit and you'll have to wonder like what's going on there internally, what's happening. Um, 
you know, your ability to have that trust and that credibility, it's hugely important. And it's, you know, it's not just, and we think, we think a lot day to day in terms of tactics, but, you know, the campaign, whether you're on a campaign or whatever agency you're in, you have to think longer term, just having, having that leverage and having that trust. And you build it with different leaders in different ways, obviously. But, you know, you mentioned, you know, about being an influential Marylander to the extent that I was an influential Marylander for a time. It was because I had influence with the governor and people knew that. So people knew if the governor was going to say something or announce something or do something or not say something. If somebody wanted us to not say something about something that was going to happen, usually it went through my office. And that was because they knew that it had to go through me. And the challenge, Anthony, nowadays is, especially on Capitol Hill, where reporters are everywhere, a lot more elected officials are kind of trying to act like their own communications directors. You know, you have senators who have their own conversations, you have members of Congress who do their own tweeting. And so the challenge for a communicator is to still have that leverage and that ability to really try to shape events and to really be at the center of the process. Yeah. Later, I want to really dive in and talk about how the landscape has changed and, you know, yeah. kind of going directly out to the public or to the press the way that um, folks on Capitol Hill are doing it now. But before we get there, you know, you talk about having a seat at the table and being seen as a problem solver. That's easier said than done, obviously. A lot of communicators um, might struggle to to build that type of relationship and build that influence on the inside. You've obviously done it very well with three really high-profile leaders who you have worked with. Um, what's the secret to success of building that type of relationship so that the principal looks at you as a problem solver, looks at you as a partner? When I was, um, for me, it was a progression. When I was a deputy communications director for Speaker Boehner, my focus day to day was making sure that my boss, my communications director, making sure they look good. And that meant getting, you know, getting content out, you know, getting, I didn't worry so much. I was, you know, two or three steps from Speaker Boehner at the time. And so I worried, I focused more on making sure my bosses look good and making sure our, our shop was getting, you know, hitting its markers and getting things out, getting their trust. And that really, for me, was the foundation of, you know, when the time came for Speaker Ryan to look for a communications director, I was fortunate uh, to be considered and to, to get that post. But, you know, I think a lot of it uh, comes down to, um, you know, you want to study your your principal. I used to say, you know, I was with Governor Hogan for four years. And by the end, uh, we spent a lot of time together, obviously, preparing for interviews, going over things. He was a a big focus on comms. And by the end of it, I really thought about myself almost as a, a as a therapist in a sense. And not to not to belittle that term at all, uh, but just because when you're communicating for somebody, you're really trying to get in their head and you're really trying to get to their, you know, if you're writing a speech for somebody or you're trying to devise a strategy for somebody, you're almost kind of getting in their head about how they think about things and how they uh so studying your principle, you know, speaker Boehner, you know, he like short meetings, he spoke in shorthand. He didn't have time for a lot of preamble, a lot of back and forth. So, learning his, uh, you know, learning that and and getting him speeches that showed him that I was doing my research and 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 was was on point. Speaker Ryan, we're a policy wonk, so uh, you had to know your stuff. You know, you couldn't just have messaging on tax reform. You had to know the ins and outs of it. And then Governor Hogan again, just uh, you had to know. You Governor Hogan was a voracious reader of clips. Uh, and I'm sure there's some communicators on this call who have bosses like that. So I, you know, I had to, I started to get the, but he would read it in the 
newspaper, a dead tree newspaper. So I would make sure that the copies are delivered to my office uh, to show him that I was also reading the newspaper. I was probably reading it online, but um, so anyway, I, I think a lot of it comes down to, um, you know, thinking more about the person kind of one or two rungs above you, but also studying your principal and their own style. Yeah. And it sounds like as you've developed your own philosophy, part of that has been adapting to the the needs and the style of um, the leaders who you're working with. Yeah, I think um, it, it you have to um, it's, and it's 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 like that with it's like that with communications. It's like that with everything. It's like that with managing people. You know, you can't. You know, you have a when you have a communication shop. You know, like government folks will understand this. Usually, you're on you're on this this little contained unit within a large organization, and you have different roles in communications, and you're you have to adapt to the different. Uh, motivations of your people. Some people, they just want to be behind the scenes. Some people, they want to be in the know and have information flow. Some people, they want to be out front. They want to see their, they want to see their tweets out there. They want to see their name in the paper. So you adapt not just to your principal, but you also adapt to the people uh, that are, that you're managing and that are, that are helping you out every day. So beyond influencing the folks who you're working with on a daily basis, obviously you're influencing a broader public in today's environment. It's harder than ever to break through the noise. And you've been widely recognized for how effective you were uh, during the pandemic in particular. In fact, your approach was described as, quote, masterclass in crisis communications on CNN. And the Capital Gazette called your performance, quote, consistent, objective, and almost omnipresent. Uh, I mean, congratulations. This is like really amazing praise to get. What did you learn during that experience about breaking through and building trust? I learned that um, the, my, my top line there would be that for me, the mess was the message. Uh, by that, I mean, it was such a rapidly evolving situation that I quickly realized that the normal filters for getting things out, you know, putting out a press release or talking to a reporter about something, they just weren't fast enough. And I'm not saying, you know, I would give something to a reporter and I would just sit and wait. And I just realized that events were unfolding much faster than the normal sort of news cycle, even within a news cycle. It just wasn't fast enough. And so at some point, I just started tweeting, leaning in a bit more with tweeting uh, to the point that I was um, not just we were we were live tweeting everything that was happening. I would be sitting in a meeting with the governor getting a brief health briefing. And I just started tweeting things in real time. And what this turned into organically was we had constituents who were, you know, replying and messaging me with their own questions. You know, it got to the point that I was talking to people that couldn't see their loved ones in the hospital and they were trying to reach them. They were worried about violating stay-at-home orders if they were to, you know, if they split custody of their children or they were going to drive their children over state lines to bring them uh, to their other parent. So for me, and, you know, that, that uh, I will say that, that approach, um, you know, it got to the point that I remember I would fall asleep with the phone in my hand and I would wake up in the middle of the night and just start talking to somebody. I, it was just like, I was a zombie there. You said that I got a lack of sleep. I was definitely a zombie, but for me, it was just showing, breaking the fourth wall and showing people that we were all in this together in terms of, we just, nobody knew this again. I'm talking about the very early part of the pandemic. Nobody knew, nobody knew what was going on. So but rather than make it all too polished, too perfect, I would just ship things out the door. I had to tell you part of it was, 
I was using it two ways. And then I was sort of being able to crowdsource things that I would see things coming in and I would point them out to people and other departments or other agencies. Hey, people are having problems with the unemployment website. Hey, people are having problems with school lunches. And so I was able to uh, use it in both ways. And obviously, uh, I tried to sustain it as long as I could. And, and But it did uh, inform me in terms of I began to get really focused on the idea of making sure that not just us, but all of our jurisdictions had the ability to uh, do direct text-based alerts and notifications to, you know, a lot of states do, a lot of emergency management agencies do, but I got really focused on making sure that there was still individual ways to reach people individually as much as possible. So uh, the mess was the message was, mess is the message is my bit, was my big takeaway from that time period. And something I really take away from what you shared there, Mike, is that influence is two-way. You know, we think of communication sometimes as, you know, uh, being at a, a podium or a lectern or issuing a statement, but will you really describe there, especially in terms of the use of you know social media during that particular moment of the crisis um, and kind of crowdsourcing, was that two-way influence? Yes. And I wonder if you could speak more to that because I think that's something that hopefully we can learn from and 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 translate even when we're not in a crisis. The no, that's that is absolutely right, and I was just thinking about this as you're saying that you know, people who would message me, they would say, oh, you know, so-and-so friend of mine, so-and-so neighbor said you were helpful with this, this thing. I'm wondering if you could, uh, you know, if you could help me with this. So I realized that my approach was, it was creating this sort of ripple effect of building, you know, building trust and credibility with people. And people were coming to me by referral, by, you know, oh, they read an article with my quote in it, or they saw a tweet on television. Now there were, uh, there were, there, there was a flip side to that. You know, there were uh, people who were not happy, and people who would have to let uh, fight with me a bit and punch me a bit on some things. Especially people who felt, uh, you know, business owners were going through some some challenges. But I think, um, you know, one of the things uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it a bit over the course of this hour is. You know, I think that we get a, we get a lot of influence from listening and being active listeners and showing the people, you know, whether you're in the private sector working with clients, whether you're public sector working with working in government, or even talking to reporters, showing people that you're actually listening to a conversation and you're actually taking something from it and being an active listener and getting the the finer points down. I actually think you gain a lot of influence from that and credibility from that. Mike, you mentioned trust uh, and credibility, trust in government is near a 70-year low, with just 16% of the public saying they trust the federal government at least most of the time. That's according to a new poll from the Pew Research Center. What do you think we can do about that? Um, it's, yeah, it's, um, it, it's, 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 it, and you know, every time you think those numbers can't get lower, they do. Um, there is no one solution, I think, and that's why, and we may talk about this as well, it's, that's why I think we need more people uh, from all walks of life to serve in government. Uh, one thing we did in Maryland last year was remove barriers where people didn't need college degrees to get more government jobs. Um, just trying to get more diversity in government, more different perspectives in government, because I think if if government, everybody in government starts to talk and look and sound the same, I think that really hurt. You know, everybody's a machine, everybody's a robot. I think that affects. Um, I think that affects trust. 
I think, um, you know, again, trying to humanize your communications and um, try to uh, recognize that, you know, recognize imperfections. And uh, I think that's, that's a big part of it. I think we too, too often you see kind of a hope and hide kind of strategy where people uh, don't comment or put their heads on heads under the heads under a rock and reporters, it, it kind of leads, it can lead them down certain rabbit holes. And I think it's better to just uh, be transparent, be open with people and try to build relationships that way. But I think um, just getting more people to serve, um, getting different perspectives in government and uh, you know, I, I could wax on all day about polarization and uh, misinformation and, and all of those things need to be tackled. But how can we do that if we don't, um, if we especially don't have communicators, credible communicators willing to build good faith and build trust and, and be those uh, be those voices and spokespeople? I just think that, you know, there are all these macro challenges, but I, I just think a lot of it does come down to uh, getting more more people and, and better, uh, better talent, more talent, better people into government. Yeah, it's it's got to have good people to to deal with this, don't you? Yeah. Um, I wonder what you know. You dealt with so much during the pandemic, and right now, public health leaders and communicators they have a tough job because they're advocating this fall for vaccinations for flu, RSV, and COVID nineteen um, in a very challenging environment. Um, I guess I'd ask you, what advice do you have for those public servants that are in that position now? And, you know, I wonder, how do we how do we recruit more public servants when we make it so tough for them? Um, I have to say that I have felt, you know, with boosters, especially. It's so fascinating how initial messaging decisions are are much more important than people realize. And here's this is a great example and really should be a case study. There was a point there, there was an inflection point there back in 2021 where we could have just said, this is like the flu. There's an annual shot that you'll need, that you should get, and that's what'll happen. But it, that didn't totally, you know, the public health folks didn't, it just didn't track for them. And so we got they didn't, what if, what if, you know, what if the booster got better every six months? What if we, it was a lot of overthinking as happens in government. And we ended up with this booster language and we ended up with booster language complicated by complicated uh, just eligibility. And if we had, there was a point where if we had just made it simple, that it'll be like an annual shot and for your pharmacy. And that's an important point. You know, Maryland, we we're early to pursue medium long-term a pharmacy-based strategy because there was no way we were going to maintain mass vaccination sites, school-based vaccine. We we're going to maintain all of that long-term. But pharmacies, pharmacies could do that. And uh pharmacies sort of ended up as one in the beginning, as sort of one of many channels. And now uh now they are more out front. That is where people will predominantly go. Um so I would say, you know. I think the best, I think the trying to leverage pharmacies as much as possible and their mouthpiece and their omnipresence, so to speak. And uh, I think, you know, um, just try to make it as, you know, we try, look, we all try. We all try to make the eligibility as simple as possible. Folks may remember, you know, there were different tables and, you know, ages. And then it was like, if you had special occupations and yeah. 
you know, I think the more we can make it part of your you know, annual uh, daily lives is is important. I think to your point about public health, um, you know, we uh, and I obviously talked to a lot of public health experts and gained a lot of respect for public health for experts over the course of, of the pandemic and and all of our uh, deputy health secretaries and folks in, in the state. Um, it really it it really would be important just to uh, just to go through all these scenarios and to prepare for future, not just for future pandemics, but you know, we went through a monkeypox issue last year in, in several states. We went through, you know, we go through different public health crises. So I think the more we can get people into government to help us prepare and to plan and to stress test scenarios and to try to, uh, you know, get people as prepared as possible. I feel this way about all kinds of crises, but especially public health. The more we can do it, and obviously there's playbooks and pandemic prevention. I'm talking about that. I'm talking about communicators having their own lane of preparation and prevention and what works and maybe doing focus groups and just trying to test things and, 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 and be prepared, feel more prepared. Yeah. And I think your point about sometimes we, there's this balance between overcomplicating things, which are inherently complicated and having simple messaging. And that if you get it wrong at the beginning, it can really, it can really stick. So good lesson there. I want to take a little break from all of this crisis conversation and just take a step back. Um, when did you know that you wanted to be a communicator? Where did that inspiration come from? Uh, I grew up wanting to be, uh, I grew up wanting to be a speechwriter. I grew up in the, during the Reagan administration. And this was back when presidents, it seems quaint now, but presidents used to sit down at the resolute desk in the Oval Office, address the country at 9.01 PM about all manner of topics. And uh, I, I don't, I didn't understand exactly what he was talking about, but I knew it was important. And so I grew up, you know, reading Peggy Noonan's books, studying speeches. I had those like best of speech compilations. And, you know, for me, I was fortunate, Anthony, because uh, it was like a doctor picking the right specialty. And that when I got to Capitol Hill, it's like the mid 2000s, you know, blog, we were just starting to have blogs, uh, social media folks on here may remember we used to call it new media because it was so new. But drafting content for that was so foreign to us. And so being a writer really helped me. And so I always knew that I wanted to be a writer want to be a speech writer. And uh, I was fortunate that I had mentors early on who encouraged me to stay focused on that, to make that how I would stand out and how I would set myself apart. And to this day, I still recommend to people to try to not just necessarily writing, but try to have some specialty, try to have something. You want to be in this line of work, you want to serve, you want to help people, you're inspired by a certain politician, great, but have something, some skill, something that, that you're passionate about and that you feel uh, that you feel sets you apart. I think a number of communicators uh, listening in can probably relate to this. Yeah, that image of you that you know you're you're sitting on the carpet watching <laughs> the president give a speech, and you think I want to be the one who writes that speech. I mean, that's that's kind of cool because that's something that you know maybe many communicators have in common. Yeah, I um, and I, you know, I. You get to do it. You have to be when you're a speechwriter. You have to be in rooms, especially when you're a younger speechwriter. You're in rooms that other people aren't in because you're, you know, you're in these crisis situations. And that's part of what helped me later on in terms of especially with crisis communications. You know, when you're a speechwriter and you're asked to come up with something in response to a shooting or in response to, you know, some kind of crisis. You know, you really you don't really have time to process. You just have to go right to it. And so that's part of where I kind of learned that resilience. Now, being a speechwriter. 
kind of a behind the scenes uh, yeah. role, hosting a daily press briefing, you know, being on camera. This is quite the opposite. So how did that transition happen? Uh, reluctantly is um, why I, anyone who's worked for me with me will tell you, I'm happy to be behind the scenes at my desk in my, in the press shop, working with my team. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to do that. But a couple of things uh, happened for me. First, uh, I, I began to see the value of not just building relationships with reporters, but also editors, bookers, producers, sometimes bookers know more about what's going on, the people that are actually doing the shows. And building those relationships helped me to understand better how a segment comes together, how a story comes together, how an investigative report comes together. And those skills help me with other parts of my job every day, directing communications, working with my team. Uh, so not just, and I, you know, obviously making friends with some of these folks and, and, and building, building relationships with them is, is great as well, but it really helped me to understand how to understand it better. If you're too far removed from it, uh, and this, I think other government communicators on here will definitely understand this. You know, everybody thinks they're a mess. Everybody thinks they're a comms expert. Everybody thinks they're a messenger, you know, and they see a bad story and they want you to fix it and clean it up. But, you know, imagine them having to be in the, be in the pocket and learn how this stuff comes together. And it, it, it really does, uh, it, it really does change your perspective. And so part of it for me was if I was going to be a communications director, I had to really understand better uh, that aspect of things. And the second thing is for me, Becoming, you know, speaker's office, especially you have the biggest team on cap, biggest press team on Capitol Hill. And, you know, I, I thought it was important and, and, and the governor's office as well. I thought it was important that, you know, when you're in your talk, when you're in public, public facing like that, or you're on Twitter or you're working with reporters, you know, obviously you're going to get into some scrapes. Uh, it's not going to go perfect all the time. You're going to get some quotes you don't love and you're going to get criticized. But I wanted my team. I think it's important. That your team sees you having to bleed a bit. Your team sees you taking some punches and taking some slings and arrows a bit. That you're not just staying behind the scenes and pushing people out there, and they have to take, you know, all the lumps for you. And I never would want to ask anyone on my team to do something that I couldn't do myself. And so, especially, you know, at the beginning of the Trump era, this became more of an issue just because, especially when Twitter really started to become super polarizing. But um, and you know, you again talking about. Resilience, you learn, you know, having to, you really have to obviously develop a thicker and thicker skin. But I thought it was, it, it was I just thought it was important to my credibility as a manager as well. When you talk about managing a team, you managed the largest team on, on Capitol Hill in that role, you know, in the speaker's office. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your philosophy on or what you learned about building a culture on a team as a leader, because I'm sure that each of the folks you've worked for have their own styles and their differences. Um, but I know you've kind of brought your own approach and, and have, you know, had to focus on building a team culture. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, uh, I really appreciate you asking about this because I am, anyone who's worked for me will tell you that big believer in culture um, and not just, uh, not just camaraderie, but um, just having a, a culture in place that's uh, that's a foundation for whatever happens. You know, it's easy to say, okay, we're all here working for the Speaker of the House, working for a governor, working for this secretary, working for this director. Uh, these are great jobs. We all have our roles. But, you know, when you build a culture of trust was a big thing for me, trust. Uh, not just trust in me as a leader, but trust in each other. 
because there are going to be times that they'll have to rely on each other in a, in a comm shop and trust in themselves. I used to always say to people, I need you to try things. You know, don't be afraid to bring me ideas. I wanted people to build trust in themselves and having that trust in place, having a culture where people want to try things, take some risks now and then. So that when the crises come, you know, our team with COVID, uh, I'm so proud of our team for, with during COVID, but mo- largely because they really bought into the kind of culture that I was trying to build. I was there for about a year before COVID started and uh, it was the second term. So a lot of the habits were ingrained and I didn't want to try to change too much, but because we had put a culture in place when crises happened, when things went sideways, you know, people knew what they needed to do, knew what I cared about, knew what I put a premium on. So uh, try to build a culture that's uh, built on you know trust, uh, but also a big thing for me uh, personally, um, especially with with government and public service and storytelling is just doing your job with joy. Uh, I I'm fascinated still to this day. I'm fascinated to meet people in government and you know they're just so miserable, uh, especially communicators. And it's like, well, why? Surely there's something else then you could be doing. You know, like if you don't find joy in this because it takes a lot out of you, it asks for you, it asks a lot more of you than it gives sometimes, and you make sacrifices. And so, you know, my team, I wanted them to have hobbies, have things they care about in their lives, people they care about in their lives. And so, uh, I was a big believer in uh, just making sure people were taking care of themselves. And uh, I think that's another way uh, that you build trust. I really do. As I hear you talk about trust, um, you know, not just with this question, with the others you answered, it really comes through that trust in yourself, kind of going out from that, you know, the trust you build with your team. And then, you know, that leads to that trust you can build with the public. And it sounds like it'd be really difficult to build trust with the public if you didn't have those other pieces of it. I'm wondering if you could talk about specifically um, what it's like communicating on behalf of an elected official you know, compared from other types of communications roles. And, and I wonder if that, if that trust piece, you know, might be one difference, how you build it and how you establish it, but other differences that, that you could share um, about that very unique role of being the trusted communications advisor, partner for an elected official. Um, it, yeah, I was thinking about this this morning. Uh, it, uh, I, this is a, it's a quick analogy. Irish people in Ireland, when they order when they order an Irish coffee in Ireland, they usually say they want it hot to touch. They want the glass to be hot. It's just to them, that's the that's what makes it. And for me, communicating for elected official, everything is hot to touch. Every issue, every, you know, you don't, corporate leaders, nonprofit leaders, they can think more in quarters, years, even decades. They can set a marketing campaign in place based on focus groups, polling, uh, they can, you know, they can think much more broadly and pick and choose their spots generally. Obviously, there are exceptions to that. Whereas when you were for an elected official and you're on the front foot and you're out there every day, you have to try and have a message of the day while managing a crisis of the day, while managing a shiny ball or two or five of the day. And that, Anthony, I think is the biggest thing is, I think communicators on here would agree, it's getting your boss or your your office not to engage on every shiny ball, every issue that comes your way, because it can just take you off track for days, if not weeks, somehow, if you say the wrong thing, or you, you just drain energy from your main message. You know, one thing the, the leaders I worked for were all great about was they understood the importance of repetition and of 
being sticking to the keeping the main thing the main thing and sticking to what they cared about and what they wanted to advance, whether it was a bill or an initiative or making an issue more salient. And just, you know, when you're the governor, especially anyone who works, you know, I know we have a lot of local folks on here. When you work especially in state and local government, you know, anything, anything can be an issue, but it's definitely gonna be an issue if you respond to it. So if you if you get involved in some local scrap or there's some uh, grant issue, you know, there's, there's every day there's there's endless choices. And then the big thing is that everything is just, you're just your hand is just so close to the stove every day. And that includes um, you yourself. I mean, you, you know, you're obviously going to face, and this was one challenge that um, definitely has changed in recent years that I had to, that I had to uh, focus on was uh, especially working in a state and state government where I have so many uh, communicators, you know, people being targeted online, uh, cyberbullying. Uh, I had a communicator who she went on a big, she went on an annual family vacation and somebody, somebody like posted pictures from it and complained that she wasn't working hard and, and she left government, you know, not long after. And it's one of just a great regret of mine. And so, uh, but I'm not, and look, I'm not complaining. I mean, we're public officials. We, we are accountable to the public, but um, it's, it's a risk that people need to be aware of. And I think that, uh, but the biggest thing is just trying to keep distance between the hot button stuff and the stuff that you want to talk about, the stories you want to tell. Whereas in corporate, in corporate life or private, private sector life, it's, it's just so different. I mean, things, the way you plan and, and the way, the way you look at things. Well, I'm sure part of that is that folks from the outside they know how to rib these officials in a way that they want to get off track and respond. And so um, you talked earlier about, you know, not just kind of pushing whatever message out there, but, but you know, being a partner in the voice. How do you develop your style and ability to speak up when you're in the room and say things that, you know, might be difficult to say to a principal or in a group of folks? Because I know that's something that... Um, You've built the, you know, ability to do in your career, and I, I'm curious, sort of, how, what you've learned along the way, and advice you have for others who are trying to do that too. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. This is something I'm still learning today, especially, you know, the private sector where you have more meetings, especially virtual style meetings like this, and you have, you know, less time with your client or the person you're working with. And I think, um, again, I think a lot of it comes down to studying uh, your principal and understanding their. Uh, their style speaker banner. Uh, for him, 15 minutes was a long meeting. And that includes foreign dignitaries and ambassadors that would come, you know, mm -hmm. to the speaker's office. He just felt like 15 minutes, you can get a lot done. You can um you can get all your points in. And so you had to kind of learn his shorthand and learn like what would make him nod or would make him kind of shoo you away. And uh whereas speaker, whereas Governor Hogan, he sort of believed in these longer team of rivals style meetings where people just went back and forth. And, you know, so I, and I learned to sort of, instead of just getting into this, getting into these, uh, you know, meetings and, and going down these rabbit holes, I learned the value of, you know, kind of being the person who kind of broke it all down at the end. Like, here's the decision point. Cause for communicators, that's a lot of it. We just want to kind of focus on a strategy and get a, get a strategy and a direction in place. Some folks, they're fine sort of punting and talking ad infinitum. So I, I sort of 
tried to be the, you know, wait a minute, let's focus on, let's figure out what we're going to do here kind of person, as opposed to just talking and talking. And another thing is um, just figuring out um, what your principal cares about. You know, sometimes your principal cares about what's in a story or a headline. Uh, Speaker Ryan, I, I think he had Google alerts, but I don't know if he actually read any, any clips day to day, cared more about what, you know, or how our members were doing. He cared more about how the how our policies were advancing. And so you kind of brief him from that perspective. So I think, um, you know, cutting against the grain, where everybody's kind of, where the group think is going in one direction, and I'm sure folks on here can identify with this because it happens all the time. You know, you're going from meeting thinking one thing and everybody, you know, there's all this group think all of a sudden. So there's nothing wrong with, I don't mean playing devil's advocate, there's nothing wrong with being sort of the hold on a second, like let's consider the other other side of this person. And then, or just being kind of the, person that tries to break everything down and keep us on point because I think for communicators, especially uh, it, it can be hard, you know, having meetings that are ineffectual and that go to nowhere is, can be very challenging. You really want to, uh, you really want to get an outcome. You really want to, uh, cause you have a thousand things going on and you really want to get to get to yes, get to where you need to be. But it's um, every, every leader's style is different, but I, I don't think you can take the same style into every, every meeting. Yeah. I wonder, you know, we've talked about media and clips, but we've also talked about social media. I wonder how you have balanced the need to reach people on various channels um, with, you know, just the tried and true lessons of communications, you know, and keeping those in mind and not just adapting to the latest, you know, app or tech platform. Yeah, I'm, I'm, still, a, uh, I'm still a proponent of focusing on sound bites of just thinking about, you know, if it's something for print, how would you want to see it in the paper? If you're doing a TV interview, what do you want the network or whoever, you know, you know, the outlet you're working with to, how do you want them to bill it? If you're going on a podcast, how do you want them to bill it? And a lot of that comes down to, you know, I think it's a bit of a science. I really do. But, uh, you know, when I, when I would bring, um, when Governor Hogan and I would get ready for Sunday shows, we would on a variety of topics. But then at the end, you know, the value of it really is to shape narratives and print stories for the week. So I would sort of say to him, like, well, what do you want the headline to be? And what do you, and we would just kind of go over these lines and just keep honing it down until we got to the one that would be the most quotable. And it sort of became a game to see if that's what folks would use uh, as the quote. And most of the time we were right. Sometimes it was, sometimes he would take liberties on other topics and it would be, it would be something else. But, um, I'm still, a, you know, I still think it's important to, uh, no matter what uh, or what platform you're on, to just have a clear, effective, succinct message, and uh, to just think about what you want, uh, what you want that that main billing to be. And again, no matter what, obviously, different forms have different levels of creativity. Another thing that I think is really important, and there's so many studies about this. You know, I'm fascinated to this. At this point, you probably at this point, uh, I'm still. A, um, I used to get these. Um, I used to get these uh, ads in my LinkedIn about how the press release is dead. It was a whole thing that somebody was doing, and I'm just—I don't agree with that at all. I think press release still has a valuable place in an organization uh, and for stakeholders and the public in terms of framing all your information. The issue is just to your point about different channels is how you adapt it for the times that we're in. Yeah, if you're sending out a press release without a graphic, you have a lot less chance of engagement. If you're not using social content based on your press release and chopping it up for for different, you know, platforms. But 
to me, a press release is still a huge flagship product that you really want to hone. And obviously it can be, you know, I'm not saying you know, there's some senators like Chuck Schumer infamously has like eight, pa- eight headlines and all kinds of 16 paragraphs. I'm not saying that, but uh, I think before you get too involved in what goes on social, I think a press release is still a great way to frame, frame your messaging and how you want to get it out. Mm-hmm. That's it, it's it's really interesting to hear that because you're right. A lot of people are yeah do say the press release is dead. And what I think I'm hearing you say about that is um, not necessarily using it exactly in the way that one might have used it before, assuming that you know just having a press release is going to get picked up, but using that as a vehicle to frame your message, and then from that come you know the other. Um, you know, if you have that first, you're going to have better social content and, you know, you're going to have an image with it and like increase the likelihood of it getting picked you're, up by saying that, right? Yes. And you're going to have, it has a higher value internally. You know, you might, a press release might end up a way that you sort of internally litigate a policy. And then yeah. if it's, uh, or, you know, you, you're pitching a reporter down the line, instead of piecing together all these tweets out of things you've done, you have it all in one place in a press release to show them the history of the issue. So, uh, you know, to me, yeah, it's just a, it's just a, a flagship, flagship piece of work that, um, again, maybe it doesn't have the reach that it used to have, but I just still see the high, high intangible value in the exercise. And the pro, you say the exercise, the process of it is so powerful. You know, I don't know a leader or a communicator who isn't asking themselves in today's environment, how is AI going to impact or how is it already impacting my organization? And you've seen how technology has impacted government communications across your career. Uh, but, you know, look, you could use AI to, to generate a press release and it's, you're, you're going to miss the whole process, right? Which is where you see the value. I'm just curious what thoughts you have about AI from your experience as a, a government communications leader. Yeah, that was sort of becoming a bigger thing towards obviously the end of my time in government and, um, I would say that like any new platform, two things. One, like any new platform, uh, you know, does it fit with your overall mission? Uh, I remember when Snapchat came along, when TikTok came along and, oh, we met with these people. We want to start a TikTok. Well, why? What's going to be our, you know, why does that fit with what we're doing? Do we really need another channel to, um, so if you're going to adopt AI, just think about how, especially as communicators, how does it fit? Like I saw, um, speakers, Speaker McCarthy's office is using AI to make graphics. Uh, that probably saves them time and creative time and energy. Um, obviously, and I will say to folks, uh, you'll notice it's going to get, uh, and this will be its own skill, but I have seen, you can kind of tell now what AI processed writing looks like, including in press releases. It has a certain uh, starchiness to it, I'll just say. Um, but so I think just how it fits your overall mission is important. The second thing, though, and I feel this one I feel much more strongly about Um Sometimes we rush to do the next big thing. It's important we still get the things that were the fundamentals of communications right. Like I bet we've got communicators on here who are trying to improve their websites, make them more responsive to mobile phones, improve their accessibility for people who are deaf and hard of hearing, making sure you have ASL interpreters at press conferences, making sure you can reliably live stream. We still have a lot of governments, a lot of committees, a lot of folks who don't have reliable live streams for reporters and the public or don't have, or don't have ways for uh, people to... Uh, deliver input or provide community feedback. I remember we had an issue last year in Maryland. We had one jurisdiction that really didn't have a way to text. It's, I talked about this earlier. Didn't that really have a way to text its residents? 
They thought they had built a public notice by just tweeting about something. It doesn't really count. There's only a small percentage of people on Twitter. So I would say AI sounds great, but don't forget about, don't let it take away time from energy and resources, from the fundamental things you're trying to do to reach people, to reach you know people in their daily lives, you know, folks out there who aren't as politically attuned as you or I and the folks on here. Like don't don't let go of those things. They're hugely important. Yeah, when you talk about technology, I'm just reminded we interviewed on the Chief Influencer podcast, uh, Monica Goldson, uh, who at the time was um, the head of Prince George's County Schools. And during the pandemic, they instituted a telephone town hall system. But what I thought was really unique about it was it called the parents and would say, this is going to start, you know, press one to listen in. And they had tens of thousands of folks, you know, press one, put it on speaker while they were driving or dinner. And just that one simple change versus hoping people would remember to dial it. And so just thinking about ways to use technology in government to serve the public, you know, there's some great ways to do it, but then there are also some ways that, you know, shortcuts might detract from your goal. Yeah, that's great. Teleton halls are great. Um, so today's fireside chat was inspired by your guest commentary published earlier this year that opened with, uh, quote, public service remains a noble calling. It is singularly gratifying, if at times grueling, work that offers the opportunity to make a difference and represent the people. We've had uh, some questions from our listeners come in specifically about public service. One was uh, a really great one wondering, what would you change or improve about state-level communications if you had to navigate the pandemic crisis again? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, I would definitely have spent more time building the communications infrastructure to reach people, reach residents. You know, we uh, we had text-based. Uh, we had a text-based. We um, Maryland has it. It's called MD Ready that they use for storms especially. Um, it just wasn't as built out at the time. I would have just done a whole like email marketing. I would have done like a whole email marketing campaign. I would have done. I would have worked with. I would have tried to build this list up as 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 much as possible. Um, we haven't really done a lot, and these are just small examples. We really hadn't done a lot with Instagram in the governor's office, and then at the beginning of the pandemic, they uh, they they brought me some analytics showing that we had had a lot of we had an explosive growth in our first few weeks, especially among younger people. And so I realized that that was a way uh, to reach people next door. Next door is kind of polarizing right now because it tends to lean towards people with negative comments on what's going on. But I found the posts had huge reach. So one thing I would change if I could do it again is I would just have much more infrastructure in place um, uh, to uh, to just get the word out. And that's you know it's my point about me tweeting out. I mean, that was fine. But I would have loved to just have, uh, and that was nobody's fault. We just, you know, again, nobody, 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 could be prepared, nobody was prepared for that kind of uh, thing. And the second thing I would say is, um, one thing we tried in Maryland, we had a lot of emergency managers on here will know, uh, it's called uh, Joint Information Centers. So getting um, communicators uh, to come in and sort of be on call 24-7, uh, I would have just, uh, I think it's important to uh, it's a good thing to do, but you know, sort of having a kitchen cabinet of your communicators, even if to your point of public health communicators, even if that isn't their specialty, but they're good communicators, sort of bringing in your your best communicators in the middle of a crisis. Uh, we were able to do that rather quickly, but I would have had all of that infrastructure in place uh, ahead of time as well. I would have had my you know ten to twelve best people 
uh, together in one place. Hindsight's 2020, but you know, it's always good to to think through these things because it can plant seeds for for the future. So I, I really appreciate those ideas and hearing like next door as a platform. Um, I think is really interesting because it's sometimes not on folks' radar at all, but there's a lot of communication happening there and it's where neighbors are getting things from one another. People who are engaged, obviously it does skew older, but these are engaged residents who hopefully you're trying to, uh, you're also to to your point about, to to the one about influencers, those folks are influencers too. If you can reach the key folks in a neighborhood, they can help you. I doing that during COVID, I I would talk to somebody I'd say, can you get the word? How would you know? How would you get the word out to your friends, group texts, whatever? I mean, that's that. That's important to, you know, not just reach broad groups of people, but reach the right people, reach the right communicators. Yeah. One of our listeners um, said that they appreciate your emphasis on the power of repetition and the importance of keeping the main thing, the main thing. Um, they wonder what your approach is to counseling public executives on communications for the main thing and other issues that are important. For example you know, important acknowledgement, social responsibility, et cetera. Well, I think, um, I think knowing the things that, you know, your your leaders care about and finding ways to show them how something might dovetail with, you know, with that issue and trying to, I'm not saying you're, you fit in a square peg into a round hole, but uh, trying to show them how it would help build out their, build out that overall issue and the salience of that issue, I think is important. Uh, I think with Governor Hogan, obviously a lot of it was about um, not just COVID, but a lot of it for us was about, you know, state level leadership, governors leading. And so there were issues, refugees from Afghanistan, there were issues from time to time that would have crossover with national politics going on in the national landscape that related to uh, are over how I could, my job was to show how it related, you know, again, from a communications perspective, obviously there's policy arguments to be made and, and other things, but uh, I think it's hard to go in from a cold start is my point. It's hard to go in and just, Hey, I got this thing that I've seen this before. People come in, you can tell them something they care about their bugaboo. And you're just, it, it, it's hard, hard. I think it's hard to have a cold start. I think you want to try to put it in their wheelhouse, put it in their, uh, you know, put it in, put it in their lane to the extent that you can in a way that they understand, and uh, try to get their, uh, try to get their buy-in, try to get their buy-in for it. I think that's important. Yeah, we recently interviewed a, a CEO of a health system, and he said, as he's grown in his career, he's learned the most important thing he can do is if he has an idea, get everyone else to think it was their idea. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like that might be another way of saying a little bit of what you just well, said. Yeah, I, that's a great point. I would look if something came up and I could find like if I had to get the governor's buy-in on something, if I could find an old quote of his or an old thing, you know, something I could point to say, hey, this was something you care. You, know, you got to do your homework. You got to, again, you got to find it. Uh, that's a that's a great point. You want to, you know, get people's buy-in. Really important. Yeah. It takes some maturity too, because, you know, Sometimes we like to get credit for our own ideas, and so kind of having others own those. Like, oh, you had that was a great idea you had there. Um, you know, I think that's sort of a growth thing. So it's a fun, fun thing to think about. Um, you know, others who have been recognized as a chief influencer like you have told us that they don't always get inspiration from their direct industry peers, but sometimes they find inspiration in different 
spaces. Mm. And I wonder, as you think about, um, you know, whether it's building trust or whether it's finding unique ways to get a message out, where have you gotten inspiration beyond the world of, you know, government communicators that you know so well? Um, as a writer, I'm a big believer in reading good writing. So obviously, uh, and not just that, but also I think it's important to study the process of, uh, of great writers. So like a lot of folks right now, I'm into Taylor Swift and not just the music, but also she tends to put online how she puts a song together and what her process is. I grew up with Billy Joel's music and I was fascinated not just by the music itself, but the stories of how he would come up with these songs and how they related to people in his, in his, in his life and, and who they were based on and sort of taking from uh, their processes and but, you know, the world around you, I think, is is really important. And uh, I had some best advice I got, actually, in college. I was, I think I was just trying to kiss up to a professor of mine, and I wanted a list of, like, government books I could read over the summer. And he sent me, Anthony, he sent me a list of 12 books. They had, they were about, like, physics. They were about nothing related to government. And his point was, you know, branch, like, learn from other people, learn from other smart people, learn from how you know, these are people who are influential in their fields. These are things that might help you learn about behavioral, you know, politics. And so I, it, it was great advice. And I, I give it, I gave it to my students last semester at Georgetown, like get out and learn more about the world around you. It's not just about, you know, you don't have to go home and watch Fox news all night and, and go on Twitter. You know, you can, you can branch out. It's okay. Oh, that's yeah. That's, that's such a good reminder, right? Cause when we look at other fields or things you might think, well, this, I, this book doesn't have anything to do with my work. That's sometimes when you find the best lesson or the best uh, nugget. Are you reading anything interesting right now that you'd share with us? It's a good question. Um, I uh, read a lot of books about British politics, actually. So that's my, that's I actually probably read more about British politics than I do American politics. So I'm reading uh, there's a new book. There's a there's an author, uh, Anthony Selden. He does books about each prime minister. And he's up to his Boris Johnson book, which, as you can imagine, is very exciting. So I'm reading that. Uh, I'm reading that right now. I read British politics uh, and uh, whatever my kids make me read. Uh, right. Oops. That's great. Well, um, I just have to say, Mike, you know, as I think about some of the themes that we discussed today, that, you know, the big one that just comes through for me is trust. And really what stuck with me is as a communicator, of course, you want to build trust with the public and whoever, you know, that constituency is that you're getting the message out to. But what I think we learned from you is to do that as a communicator, you have to build a partnership with the principal you work with and have a trusted relationship with them. So you can, you know, have a two-way dialogue and you have to build trust with your team and a strong culture. And the root of all that is you said it, you know, it kind of was in there quickly, but really stuck me. You have to trust yourself. And, um, you know, taking that time, learning about other fields, you know, you, you gave a lot of examples of things you can do to build that. So that's really a theme that, that sticks through with me that I think all of us, no matter what role we're in, can learn from. from. And I just want to thank you for your time today uh, and sharing your expertise with us. No, thank you. And thanks to you, all the folks who joined. Um, anybody on here that wants to connect, obviously I'm on LinkedIn and would love to... Uh, you know, get to know more folks who are interested in government and getting involved in, in public service. And I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to do this. That's awesome. So yeah, you can find Mike Ricci on LinkedIn, currently with Seven Letter, if there happen to be multiple Mike Ricci's. 
And uh, we, uh, we look forward to sharing this with a broader audience too. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Chief Influencer, a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board. If you know a leader who should be featured as a chief influencer, please nominate them at chiefinfluencer.org. For show notes and more, visit us at chiefinfluencer.org or follow Chief Influencer on LinkedIn. Until next time, 